0: A revised version, a written version, will be issued shortly. Hearing no objections, it is so decided.
1: So the tide has gone out on the COP26 conference in Glasgow, and we have some text. Today, we take a look at that text on this special edition of the Health Econometrician. What passed was probably the most watered-down agreement activists could hope for. In essence, it kicked the can down the road for another year. So 11% of the time our leaders have left is going to be spent waiting. So I've looked at the original agreement. It makes for grim reading. I've also run a data analysis grouping together the common themes and the intensity of the sentiment within the document. I'll drop a link to the infographic in the description. And while there are a lot of great words, all very important for a commitment, none of them are legally binding. And the one word that is missing is ACT. Everything else is about acknowledgement and reiteration, replaying words we've heard before. But could we really have done any different? Let's listen to the closing speech by Alak Sharma, who is presiding over proceedings and representing the UK government as president of COP26.
0: May I just say to all uh, delegates, um, I apologise for the way this process has unfolded. Um, and uh, I'm deeply sorry. I also understand the the deep disappointment. But I think, as you have noted, it's also vital that we um, protect this package. Delegates. Thank, thank you, thank you, friends. We, we, we should be, we, we need to proceed. Thank you very much. Um, so, given what interventions we've had, um, I propose that the revised proposal is adopted uh, as orally amended. A revised version, a written version, will be issued shortly. Hearing no objections, it is so decided.
1: Obviously what he said was very impassioned, but at the same time did anybody notice him reading out any votes? There's a reason for that. I've been fortunate enough to work with the United Nations on a couple of occasions. The organisation runs entirely on consensus. Very rarely does anything get put to the vote within the main conference of the parties. In essence it is looking for unanimity in every single part of its operations. Member states do not hand over any sovereignty, and as a result the United Nations can never compel a member state to do something, unless in areas of security. No money ever changes hands, but the commitments are made by individual countries. So when a country says it will do something, it will then commit to putting that into its own domestic legislation, to be enforceable by its courts and its courts only. The only exception being the European Union, because that shares sovereignty allowing the European Union to act on behalf of 27 nations. It was 28 until the United Kingdom left. The EU works as a much stronger entity because it effectively delegates that work to the Union level. But no such mechanism exists within the United Nations. So in this episode, I'm going to take a look at the agreement and read it in detail, making my comments and narration as I read it. So you can see what I think of it, obviously, but... Also, hopefully, I can provide something to consider when looking at this document. The United Nations, we have to remember, it's worth remembering that the United Nations has no sovereignty of its own. That means it can't create enforcement mechanisms without individual nations contributing to that enforcement mechanism. Not just that, it works off consensus. That requires unanimity. And unfortunately, this can mean that agreements can be stalled by member states and nations who have a particular vested interest in not pursuing the agenda the same as everyone else. But in order to get some agreements moving forward, a lot of other countries will then pander to those demands just to ensure that some progress is made instead of going all the way to a conference somewhere in the world and coming back with nothing to show for it. Section 1 of the document is all about science. It's only got four sections in it and it barely makes half a page but it recognizes the importance of science as a baseline for the policy and decision making that should go into climate change action. It also acknowledges the IPCC report published earlier in the year and calls on parties to enhance their ambition to find solutions both to mitigation and adaptation and crucially to finance those solutions in ways that are effective, enduring and sustainable. At the same time, it should be recognized that the UN can't actually mandate this to happen. The commitments made around the table are just to allow national governments to then make those changes within their own laws and create policies, incentives, and state aid procedures to encourage greener innovation and new ways of working, and any transition between the two states of now and the future. In a lot of ways, this section reads like a script. You have to express alarm. You have to stress the urgency of enhancing ambitions. And these create models, but somewhat weak presentations, if you like, of the needs of climate activists, but also societies as a whole. The lack of ability to mandate what happens in this document, and also the lack of detail, means that There's a lot of wallpaper, but not a lot of wall. Section two is about adaptation. Again, it reiterates the findings of the IPCC report. There are some countries out there that have already presented their national adaptation plans. And that's great because they have to, but equally there are still plenty of countries out there who haven't even started. And this section calls on those countries to integrate adaptation plans into local, national, and regional planning. In essence, trying to make sure there is a top to bottom plan for how the country has to adapt while there is a mandate to start it does suggest that countries should consider how this will affect their people and this may or may not have the desired effect because not every country around the world uses democratic systems and it's not accepted by the ruling elite that does create this complete segregation between what the elite thinks is good enough for the people and what the people actually need in fact Sometimes the people don't actually know what they need, especially where countries run certain types of information black spots. It also acknowledges the need to present the IPCC report at COP27, which is due to take place in November 2022. Effectively, this is the line that kicks the can down the road another year. But when you kick that can, you're also creating up to 12 years worth of damage compared to pre-industrial times. And because of that, you have this ongoing juggernaut that you'll never be able to catch. We're already behind, and it's accelerating away from us and all we can do is wait another year. That's 11% of the time that we should be using between now and 2030 more effectively. Adaptation Finance That's Section 3, a contentious part of the conference overall. Together with mitigation, Adaptation was supposed to be financed to the tune of $100 billion. This was a pledge originally made 12 years ago in Copenhagen. Set aside $100 billion dollars to help developing nations mitigate the effects of climate change most of it came out of the foreign aid budgets and in the uk last year the government had decided to reduce the foreign aid commitments from 0.7 to 0.5 percent of gdp at the same time the coronavirus pandemic had massively dropped the total value of uk gdp the net result is that they've got even less and of course many countries have not committed that money anywhere without that funding Neither defences to prevent climate change hitting those communities, nor aid would become available. A big problem for developing nation parties, because they're now right in the firing line. Developed nations have not invested the money that they pledged they would do all those years ago. And COP26 sought to rebalance that by making sure the original pledge delivered on that. And also building different robust sustainable financial instruments. For example, green bonds innovation financing that allowed for new types of technology to help while also ensuring that aid provisions were made available food housing shelter and other humanitarian response this was such a huge part of the conference but unfortunately the commitments made only accounted for five basic clauses none of them mandatory again the other interacting difficulty is how some countries relationships with other parties has started to deteriorate and whether or not those financial mechanisms exist in such a way that enables that transactional relationship between two parties. Because the UK left the European Union and lost its passporting rights, the process of derivatives used in financial services now is not the same. So those future gains that would normally be easily attainable for a green bond, for example, or for a stock which held a green component, if such a thing ever existed would now not be enforceable through a derivative contract in the same way meaning European Union member states could never offset the other side of that transaction in some future time or vice versa. There was no formal solution to this adaptation financing issue and as a result COP26 left the playing field as open as it did when it started. The mitigation section which is section 4 spends a lot of time stating the obvious. It recognises that the impact of climate change will be much lower at the temperature increase of 1.5 degrees compared to 2 degrees. It reaffirms the long term global goal to hold the increase in global average temperatures to well below 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. It also recognises that limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees requires rapid, deep and sustained reductions in global greenhouse gases. Including reducing global carbon dioxide emissions by 45% by 2030. Crucially, it also acknowledges the existence and importance of other greenhouse gases. This includes things like methane, sulfur hexafluoride, and other chemical combinations that are sometimes potentially up to 5,000 times worse than carbon dioxide. At the same time, it's urging members. To try and accelerate the development of new technologies that will allow carbon sequestration, as well as clean power generation. All of these have natural homes in the developing world as it happens, because there's more sunshine. And all of that can be better harnessed in each individual area, especially if it works on a local level. Our obsession with centralized power generation systems actually stems from coal power. We never needed centralised systems, but it was the easiest way to get coal from one place to another at the time. Now that we're able to generate energy anywhere, localised grid systems should be the future. It cuts down on the amount of travel and crucially ensures that there is a lot less power loss, even in highly efficient systems like the UK National Grid. There are lots of novel energy storage solutions out there at the moment and they don't have to take the shape of a traditional battery, like reservoirs, is a good opportunity to look at harnessing energy through dual use. At the same time, areas which have significant sunshine can power significant their energy needs, allowing traditional infrastructure to focus on the night time. At the moment, some areas only have six hours of electricity every single day. And this can make it really, really difficult to power anything To the fact that traditional electronic devices have nowhere to be charged or nowhere to be plugged in and even if they were there's always the risk that the power might fall out and this is a process known as load shedding Because there's a limited capacity for power they shed the rest of the load around it switching off your electricity the renewable energy allows these societies to work anytime they need to by combining energy generation techniques with an effective renewable generation mechanism sure that doesn't immediately reduce carbon dioxide equally it does start them on the road to renewables in such a way that that can be harnessed to create more effective deployments of energy storage weaning them off and tape, tapering those societies off fossil fuels over time into something newer and giving them a softer landing into renewable energy in such an environment you can see how it's easy for areas like India to come back and say phase down not phase out yet Obviously, having seen places like Saudi Arabia turn around and say, no, we will only do it in 2060, has empowered India to turn around and say the same. Equally, there has to be consideration for how people adapt flooding. What does this mean for many areas around the world which sit under sea level or at sea level at the moment? This could be a damaging, highly destructive turn of events which can wipe out entire villages, towns and even cities pushing people further and further inland. We're very aware that some of the smaller volcanic island nations may disappear altogether. It creates an impossible situation for the people that live there. Do they leave and start over with nothing elsewhere? Or do they stay in the hope something might turn in the meantime? And that does mean acting in a way that reduces the effects of climate change and also providing a mechanism for them to parachute in somewhere else. And as we've seen, not everywhere in the world is that friendly. Section 5. Finance, technology transfer and capacity building for mitigation and adaptation. We've touched upon this previously, and this is the financial mechanism by which the $100 billion should really be delivered. What it's done is set a bar to try and encourage $100 billion to actually materialise by 2025. It's trying to augment scale up funding to help those countries in the face of climate change try to mobilize scaling up that activity within those environments, thereby elongating the time they have left to adapt. Crucially within it, in essence, saying that prevention is better than a cure. Slightly obvious, but of course that's one of the things you often have to do in diplomatic exercise. It also encourages a very broad look at the sources of funding. And that does mean trying to look at mechanisms previously not have been examined, while at the same time trying to ensure that it's shored up with robust traditional income and funding streams. It also encourages greater collaboration between the Technology Executive Committee and the Climate Technology Centre and Network. Because at the moment these two have been working independently, when in fact they should probably have been working much more solid from the very beginning of all of this. Anybody familiar with technology or even working in a hospital understand these multidisciplinary team structures that allow teams to work more effectively and crucially shortens the time delivering whatever value the team needs to deliver so whilst it's a very weak agreement as a whole this section does emphasize the need and importance again of working together on all this it was clear that the council didn't really see an effective co-working strategy we started to see criticisms of china and the us section six loss and damage to deal with climate change events as they happen it acknowledges that they will always happen now and we're starting to see the effects of it but crucially tries to get the parties to consider international collaboration now you would expect the united nations to say that because that's an international body but equally it's important for them to keep reiterating it to ensure that people know that there are people in the room who quote-unquote care about them and also ensuring that others in the room are encouraged to participate. Approaches to averting, minimizing, and addressing loss and damage associated with the adverse effects of climate change. This is so that you don't get repeated knockdowns before you've gotten a society back up and running. And this is an important aspect because this doesn't just stop once people are back on their feet. The risk is you leave a hole to be filled by extremism or other somewhat irrational forces. And this can be problematic because as we've seen with countries like Iraq, and even Afghanistan, when there is a gap between a society and its ideal, stable, democratic position, the far right fills it every single time, within the confusion, extremism rules. And this is an important thing to realise, that climate change doesn't stop with the migration of people. That climate change can result in a situation where there is a geopolitical risk that's The population is destabilized to such an extent that extremism takes hold again. This will have knock-on effects on refugee crises, but also puts adaptation activity at significant risk. Again, because of the nature of the United Nations, it simply can't step in. So that would leave a situation where UN funds would then have gone missing within a particular country. And the only thing that could stop that would be disbanding that particular fund stream, which as you can imagine would be disastrous for the citizens. Implementation. Section 7. The trouble with this is this highlights that there are issues outstanding from previous COPs. In particular, after Doha, there were still outstanding issues. It contains seven different clauses, none of which are acting on it. It's just trying to ensure that commitments made at previous COPs are implemented by this one. It creates the principle of a triage from the existing world to ensure that you don't have a repeat of situations like the closure of the mines in the UK. If a population isn't given new jobs, new training that tapers them down from fossil fuels into the new world, the society itself falls apart. And as we've seen, areas like Redcar suffered so badly that 40 years have passed and several generations are on the breadline and have been jobless for all that time. That's not a sufficient levelling up of the country. And this is acknowledged within these clauses, because other countries have similar effects, but nowhere near as wide as the UK. So despite the fact that we're supposed to be leading on climate change, we are terrible with the poverty gap. And without addressing that, there are going to be effects which will impact different people in different societies in an inequitable way. Basically making it a postcode lottery whether you survive at all or not. To do that, they're trying to ensure that the financial flows are incentivized to adapt to green innovation and create new jobs in that space. By doing that, it gives job seekers somewhere to land. And that pathway creates a new set of jobs for a new type of economy that the UK and other countries could potentially have, making sure that there's no incentive to go into fossil fuel work anymore. Go straight to electricity, new manufacturing, forestry, or other types of green economy. Section 8. Collaboration You would assume that a conference like COP26 would have a significant amount of collaboration in it, In reality, whilst it is the biggest section in the document, there's still a lot of principles that underline all this. And unfortunately, none of it then goes on to act. It encourages collaboration between certain bodies and acknowledges the need for international collaboration across all of it. But it doesn't create the framework to do it. It talks about a lot of the SDGs, which is great. It talks about encouraging youth voices, which is also great. But equally... It doesn't talk about tackling particular types of climate change. It doesn't talk about systemic considerations. It doesn't talk about ways of magnifying the choices we make in a positive direction. One example of that is work from home, because work from home tackles both the energy and commercial spaces, but also commuting and even food that you eat out. And all of those then contribute to a significantly lower carbon footprint for for our society. Whilst also creating the opportunity to try and build your work around your life instead of the other way around. Most of this section talks about the Sustainable Development Goals. Touching upon one or more in each individual clause. And while that's fine, again there's no action to solve any of these issues. Talking about them is just blah blah blah. And that brings us to the end of the document. And that's it. That's the entire document. 11 pages. Glasgow Climate Pact, no action whatsoever. The trouble is there's a lot of really good intent elsewhere in the world. And the people, again, are being let down by their governments. But crucially, the governments themselves are being let down by the need for consensus in the United Nations Forum. The organisation doesn't operate on a voting mechanism, by and large. Everything has to be built on consensus. Each member state has to take back the commitment and then decide what to do under its own legislative powers, creating primary legislation that would enforce the climate action delivered or desired by the Climate Pact. And perhaps that is one of the problems here. Looking for collective action has tended to require the need for consensus in a way that has tended to stifle action when it's most needed. In most emergency cases, executive committees can come together and act, but there isn't one here. And it's proving to be a very difficult churn. The good news though is we don't have to wait for them to tell us what to do. Most of us already know what to do. The techniques, the tools, the models, the technology are all available to us if we choose to act upon it. The question I leave you guys with today is what are you going to do differently tomorrow and then next week and then next year so that you can help stop climate change regardless of what the governments within the COP26 have chosen to do or not do? hope you enjoyed that look at the glasgow climate pact if you enjoyed the episode don't forget to hit like and add this podcast to your favorites we're publishing every couple of weeks at the moment and if you have any topics you'd like me to cover please get in touch or let me know in the comments until next time have a great day